One of the best things about the 21st century has been the variety of creative ways radio has evolved. Really? That's one of the best things? It's not been the best century, then. It's been slim. (laughs) But the legacy of Marconi is in good hands with Alex Lefchik and the midweek drivettes. So we got that going for us. Which is nice. Well, here we are heading through January and uh, the life and times of the country gets even more exciting because indeed the 1921 census of England and Wales has been revealed for the very first time. And to share in the excitement of this and how important this actually is, we're delighted to welcome uh, census expert for 1921 and indeed BAFTA winning presenter and, uh, and extraordinaire, Mary McKee. How are you, Mary? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. We've also got uh, top historian David Olasoga with us. How are you, David? Uh, fine. Thank you very much. Excellent. Mary, if we come to you first, uh, talk to us a little bit about why this is such an exciting time for uh, producing the uh, 1921 century. 101 years ago, of course, when it was first all collated together. Yeah, it's been amazing to bring this um, mammoth collection online for the first time uh, to be searched by anyone around the world on Find My Past. It's the largest digitization progress pro, oh, sorry, project that um, Find My Past and the National Archives has ever undertaken. And I think what the census is going to reveal is um, a lot more about a nation during the interwar years, a, a period that's often overlooked. It's a period of, you know, industrial unrest and high levels of unemployment. You have the countries recovering from the First World War, a cataclysmic event that cut through the lives of everybody in England and Wales. But I think alongside that with the household forms that we digitize is you get to see how your ancestors participated in that time period. I mean, that's very much at the heart of the whole thing, of course, because um, you know we hear a great deal about uh, how uh, uh, the Spanish flu pandemic actually worked there, the, 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 their equivalent in many ways of our COVID uh, scenario. Uh, you had, as you rightly said, the, the whole notion of uh, uh, the, 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 the growth of the uh, emancipation movement and the very strong growth of the emancipation movement with respect to, to suffragettes and so on. So lots of exciting things happening there. I mean, David, is it also a case of plus a change, c'est la même chose, the more things change, the more they remain the same. Well, I think the the fact that both the people of 1921 and ourselves um, have experienced a pandemic, I think that is something that is very striking. And it's something that wasn't the case when the digitization of the census began, when Mary and her colleagues of Find My Past started on this work. So I think that does um, make the, the, the links between 1921 and 2022 uh, even stronger. But in other ways, I think you can see comparisons. You can see changing relationships uh, and changing ideas about gender and, and, and sex. I think you can see the beginning of a modern world with new modern industries like aeronautics and uh, automobile manufacture. And then as now, one of the great social issues in Britain um, is the housing crisis. There had been a promise during the war that Britain would become a land fit for heroes. That was Lloyd George's famous wartime slogan. Well, what the census shows is that there's a desperate need to build those houses and that they're not being built at anything like the rate that's needed. So just as today, people's lives are uh, are constrained by the access to housing and many people aren't able to get on with their life because they, they, uh, they can't live where they want to live or they can't live near families. Um, we have a similar and in some many ways far more acute housing crisis 100 years ago. Is it a case of, in the classic words of Santayana, those who don't learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat its mistakes? 
I'm afraid that historians don't really believe we do learn the lessons from history. Um, I, I think we can uh, we can try to, but we tend not to. Um, no, I think it shows that we've we as a nation have never really, uh, really since we became the first urban urbanized society in the world in the middle of the 19th century, we've never managed to get the market um, to provide housing that of the quality and the scale um, that's needed in the right places um, that people want. Uh, and sometimes that that inability becomes a social crisis, which I think it is now, and it certainly was in 1921. Mary, returning to yourself, obviously Find My Past uh, is, is publishing the uh, 1921 Census of England and, and Wales online. It is, uh, as we said, an exciting time for this. What, what were the key highlights from yourself? I mean, you're obviously very familiar with this, but are there any areas that you know, people who kind of are thinking, well, I wonder what my great great grandfather or grandparents were actually doing with respect to this back in the day. I think, um, yeah, the entire project has been incredible to be part of. Um, so some of the highlights was um, uncovering some of those familiar names that we know today. Um, we found an eight-year-old Alan Turing. Um, we found one-year-old Captain Tom. We have uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's census return is absolutely beautiful. He's impeccable handwriting. Um, so that was that was exciting at the time. And then during the process of actually building the infrastructure and the online experience, um, it is amazing now to actually see it released to the public. Uh, we had a midnight launch of the census and many of my, my colleagues and I were all on a Zoom call together to watch it and then immediately start watching the public engage with it. And it's been fantastic to actually sit and watch social media to see what everybody is discovering about their personal family, about seeing that, um, you know, uh, those little details that you, you kind of know about um, from your family history. So uh, I know I looked up my um, partner's family was living outside of Ipswich and uh, her great grandmother is on a dairy farm. And immediately it brought back a flood of memories of her visiting a farm as a child that she hadn't thought of in years. And it started to make those kind of connections about why, why would she be at the farm? And, um, and it opens up more conversations and connections with your family as well. 38 million individuals, obviously, providing data and information on that. Um, I'm tempted to uh, go to the Albert Einstein classic quote, of course, that uh, the most persistent of illusions is that past, present and future are, are, are separate entities. In fact, according to Einstein, they're all one and the same. I mean, just returning to the pandemic, did you get a sense when you're looking through it that people were as worried back in 1921 about the pandemic as opposed to how obviously we have been over the last year or two? When we looked at the census forms, we didn't see a lot of evidence of people mentioning the pandemic. We do have one case where an individual actually um, used disinfectant on their census form to help to try and protect themselves from the illness. So we can uh, we've made an assumption that that is that is an after effect of the pandemic um, from the Spanish flu. But we what we see from uh, contemporary newspapers from the 19 from, from during the time of the Spanish flu is that they were having the exact same conversations that we have today. They discussed masks and whether we should wear them or we shouldn't. And that's in the news this week. We've been talking about this for years. And a hundred years ago, our ancestors were having the same exact discussion. And I have to say, uh, as uh, David mentioned, when we first started the project, COVID wasn't on the project plan in any way. Um, but as we, as we continued in the and the COVID pandemic started, it did actually change our relationship with the documents. It did change the way that we looked at these individuals and we had um, you know, a deeper connection with them.
I mean, David, if I recall correctly, um, the original outbreak of Spanish flu uh, was suppressed to, to a large extent because the government didn't want to actually demoralise the troops at the hind end of the First World War, the Great War, as it was referred to, uh, and they didn't want to panic people. Was that the case? It was suppressed in uh, the news of it was suppressed in all the combatant nations of the um, of the First World War, which is why uh, it was called at the time the Spanish flu, because Spain was not a uh, combatant and therefore its newspapers reported um, the, out, the, out, the outbreak of flu. Um, so it, it's sort of its name is a is a is a, a product of the fact that it, that it was suppressed. I think if you put yourself back to 1921, though, and you imagine that you're filling in that form, you will have been through three waves of the influenza, the second wave being the most, being the, the most, uh, the third wave, sorry, the second wave being the most deadly. You don't know whether there's going to be more waves, the, the fourth wave that largely missed Britain. You don't know this is over. And I think when we look at history, we have to remember that what we know, they don't know. So they don't know that, that they are at the end of a pandemic. They think it could be uh, uh, an interregnum between waves. Yeah. And sadly, of course, it was an interregnum between wars as well, but that's another issue for another time. Uh, and let's not talk about the Roaring Twenties, which could open up a whole new uh, area of exploration, especially as we're actually all close to celebrating, I think, the centenary of Rossum's Universal Robots, which I always think is a, is a wonderful sort of prescient line of how automation sort of uh, emerges, thanks to Carol Chapek. Mary, let's return to your good self. How can people actually find out details about this fantastic resource and indeed find my past? Sure. If you go to findmypast.co.uk, there's an option there on the main screen to um, search the 1921 census. And then from there, uh, we have a wide range of search criteria. You can start with just a name um, and a birth year, or you can add a location to, to understand more about the area you live in, or you could put in your address and discover the history of your home. And just making sure we're absolutely precise, of course, you're the 1921 census expert. Um, and of course, David is also the BAFTA award winning presenter and acclaimed historian, which is always wonderful. So let's just get that sorted through. So many thanks indeed. Keep on keeping on. Mary McKee and David Lasoga, huge thanks. And um, what's your next project just out of interest, David? I mean, is it a case of now you just sit back and, and relax and say, well, that's, uh, that's OK. I don't have to do any more historical research. No, we're hoping to be filming another series in the UK um, this year and then hopefully another series of House Through Time. Fantastic. And likewise, Mary, is it a case of, well, what's the next census I can look to now? <laughs> I would love to be a part of the next census in 30 years. We'll have to see where I am at that point. But um, yeah, with Find My Past, we'll be releasing new records from next week. Uh, we release new material every single week and digitise newspapers every week as well. Well, we've just been talking to, obviously, the exciting uh, folk behind the 1921 census, and clearly the Spanish flu was uh, the uh, one of the key aspects there, the third wave, I think, of the Spanish flu. And as we said, 100 years later, here we are, COVID-19, not Spanish flu, but something completely different, but still a pandemic that's working through in all sorts of ways. But how are we actually coping with that? And how are we actually best suited to address this particular challenge? Well, if we're in the world of education, I, uh, at the University of Lincoln or indeed in schools etc might simply be a case of just open up your uh, windows and so on but there are challenges with respect to that so let's bring on two fabulous folk who can certainly address this particular key issue when it comes to to ways forward and address this whole system first of all Professor Paul Linden how are you Paul? I'm well thank you. Excellent and we've also got uh, from the, uh, the, the the wonderful world of uh, the public sector at PHS Public Health Services, of course, Chris Brown. How are you, Chris? I'm very well, thanks, Alex. Excellent. Um, 
Paul, if we can come to you first, I mean, you're you're Professor in the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics, part of the uh, Centre for Mathematical Sciences within the University of Cambridge. Um, Just talk us through this whole notion that I think most of us are familiar with in terms of it's like smoke particles. They just hang around. You need to be constantly chasing those particles away. But how COVID-19 is transmitted via the air that we breathe? Yes. So covid Trans- is transmitted via the air we breathe. We breathe out droplets of various sizes that uh, contain virus particles when someone's from an infected person. And the small ones uh, travel around uh, through the air, rather like smoke particles, as you say. Um, and uh, and uh, if someone is susceptible and breathes them in, they will become infected. Um, And so clearly, uh, the way to reduce the risk of that is to remove as many of those particles as possible, either by introducing fresh air, uh, or by filtering the air, um, and, uh, and to try and keep it as clean as possible, so that uh, so the risk is, is minimized. Chris, I was particularly astounded to find that a fifth of teachers, 20% of teachers, don't understand or are not familiar with the government's open window policy. I would have thought that's actually almost, it's, it's, it almost beggars belief, really. I mean, were you equally shocked? Uh, I wasn't overly surprised. I, I think ventilation is a, is a fairly complex subject. Uh, there's multiple variables at play. Um, so opening a window, you know, for how long, how wide, uh, how often, et cetera, uh, are some of the reasons why teachers said they, they, they didn't really fully understand the advice. Um, I think what's perhaps more worrying is that over a quarter of the teachers that we surveyed didn't actually have a window that they could open. And in fact, across the, the, the East Midlands, it's 33%. So a third of all teachers don't have access to a window that they can actually open to provide that ventilation that's required within the classroom. That's very true. I mean, certainly uh, having been delivering face to face teaching at the the university for the last term and and obviously ongoing, um, it's uh, obviously important to actually have windows open. And and certainly pupils and students, of course, can continue to wear their coats if they are feeling cold. We're not sort of making it mandatory to say, right, okay, windows open, coats off. No, that's right. Um, Children are wearing coats and scarves and hats and gloves. Uh, My own daughters have gone to school today wearing additional layers. Um, But the problem with this, and many teachers have told us, is that this is leading to, you know, colder classroom environments are leading to distractions. It's harder for children to concentrate. It's harder for the teachers to teach. And they're also concerned that it's leading to, uh, you know, immunity uh, or or personal immunity problems in in terms of other viruses and bugs that that are around at this time of year. Um, So it's not an ideal solution. Opening the window is good advice, we should say that. Um, The ventilation from natural ventilation is obviously important. But we think there are other solutions that can be used as well. So technology, air filtration systems, uh, and mechanical ventilation systems that could help. Um, So teachers don't have to worry about having access to windows and opening the windows for, for a certain amount of time. I mean, Paul, returning to yourself again, it does seem to be, as you cited yourself, that the best solution to this is a combination of results to suit each individual classroom. Because as uh, Chris has just mentioned there, there are certain classrooms where there isn't access to an external window. Yes, <clears throat> uh, that's exactly right. And, uh, and it, is, it is a complex um, problem. Um, and one of the things that uh, we've been concerned about, and, and as the survey uh, showed, teachers are also concerned. They, they feel um, that uh, they're not ventilation experts, and it's a big ask to put on to uh, teachers who are already 
doing more than their normal job in any case, which is stressful enough. I have two daughters who are teachers and I know firsthand how they are having to deal with this. And to, to respond to that, we've actually, I have a project uh, about COVID in schools. Uh, we've been measuring, um, uh, measuring carbon dioxide levels and, and so forth. Um, and we put together with my team here in Cambridge and, and uh, our collaborators at Imperial College in London and at the University of Surrey, uh, some videos, informational videos for teachers, which we hope will will guide them uh, in response to the measurements they'll be able to access with the government rollout of carbon dioxide mm. monitors. Chris, as, as head of public sector at PHS, do you feel as though um, the overall outlook, the prognosis is good? Or do you think, oh, I don't know, we could still be going into a fourth wave, a fifth wave, we could be going into, we have, we're just going to have to live with this whole side of things? Uh, it's very hard for me to, to speculate about future waves. Um, but I think what we can say is that teachers are extremely concerned. So our research shows us that they, as you've already pointed out, they, they don't necessarily understand the advice, um, the government advice around opening window. They can't always open a window. Um, what we can say today is that there, there's research out that I think over 10% of teachers are currently away from school. They're absent. Um, and that will be largely due to COVID infection, infection and, and isolation. And we all want schools to stay open. This is an absolutely crucial part of our, of our message today. So to keep schools open, we have to keep children and teachers safe. Um, parents need the certainty of, uh, of schools being open so they can work. Uh, pupils really need the benefits, both social and educational, and I guess physical as well, of being in school. And teachers need to be in front of those children to be able to teach them. So we absolutely have to do everything we can to keep schools open. One of the other findings, which again, I thought was perhaps not unexpected, really, uh, nearly three quarters of education staff say that they're disappointed in central and local government for failing to find a better solution for air purification. Is that, again, just a case of, well, they're human beings, unfortunately, you know, they, they're just admitting that they don't know? I think the government have done, uh, you know, they've taken some really important first steps. Uh, they've introduced CO2 monitors to help schools identify areas where ventilation is not as good as it could be. Um, so to, to identify where perhaps mechanical ventilation or, or air, air filtration systems would be uh, useful. Um, but I think definitely there's a sense of, of urgency now. We're in the winter months, opening windows um, brings with it some unintended consequences, colder classrooms, as we've talked about also outdoor air pollution and, and traffic noise, et cetera. Um, and the technology is available. Um, it's ready to go. It's, it's affordable. It's ready to be used. So I think the, the sense of, is really one of urgency. We, we need to do something quite quickly. Mm. And where would you recommend people should actually go to find out further details about PHS or indeed this particular survey? Yeah, they can go to our website, uh, phs.co.uk, and just search for air filtration. That will take them to, to all the information they need. Chris Brown, Head of Public Sector at PHS, and indeed Professor Paul Linden, uh, Professor of the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics, part of the Centre for Mathematical Sciences within the University of Cambridge. Huge thanks and stay safe, gentlemen. Thanks very much, Alex. Thank you. Our love is alive And so we begin Foolishly laying our hearts on a table Stumbling in our love is a flame burning within. Now and then, firelight will catch us stumbling in. Wherever you go, 
So we have passed Twelfth Night. We're into a whole range of routines. And let's start off with a good New Year's resolution. What about recycling our Christmas trees? Yes, recycling your Christmas tree. It could be the start to a whole new world of uh, Veganuary deli delights, etc. To talk us through not only Veganuary, but also why it's important to recycle Christmas trees as well. We've got two fabulous individuals. Uh, first of all, an awesome gardener and indeed general all-round wonderful person from Indeed Gardening World. That's, of course, Rachel Detame. How are you, Rachel? I'm really well, Alex. Thank you. Excellent. And we've also got the head of Cauldron Foods, uh, 40 years worth of wonderful plant-based foods, of course, from Yorkshire, Tom Lindley. How are you, Tom? Hi, Alex. I'm really good. Thank you. Excellent. Rachel, I mean, recycling Christmas trees is something that I think has been certainly talked about since the 21st century began, really. But just explain why it's so important that uh, if we've had a real Christmas tree, uh, that maybe we should actually sort of give more life back to the planet. Yes, absolutely. And I, you're right. It sort of has been gaining in momentum, I think. People are becoming more and more interested. Um, and I think the worst thing now that we, we can do is just sort of dump the tree outside. It goes off to landfill somewhere where it decomposes, uh, produces lots of carbon dioxide, methane, greenhouse gases that we, we really want to be doing without. So what can we do with our lovely trees? And it's really nice to have a real tree um, over Christmas. I think it smells lovely. It, it looks you know spot on um, but there are things that you can do and it's just for me giving it a second life if you like so um, for example um, taking off all of the the side stems leaving the central main trunk um, and you can make a lovely bird feeder out of that so if you leave some of the bit, the knobby bits on at the top you can then use those to hang a bird feeder from make it a squirrel proof bird feeder because otherwise you'll lose an awful lot of, of the, the seeds and the nuts. And then the side stems I use to make sort of what I call a messy stack. And I think we've all become very tidy as gardeners and it's actually not a good thing for wildlife. So just somewhere tacked out of the way, if it's sort of, you don't like to see it, that's fine. But behind some shrubs, perhaps just a pile of those stems, you can just leave it there gradually decomposing. And um, it will make a lovely habitat for small mammals, things like hedgehogs, um, be good for insects and so on. Um, birds too sort of scrubbing around there uh, as well so it's just being aware of how your Christmas tree can continue to contribute rather than become a problem and become a gift that keeps on giving quite literally to the environment exactly. and the carbon cycle and, and more um Tom interestingly we talk about food of course and I mentioned veganuary and obviously shifting our, our diet from that point of view uh, just share with us why you're also passionately behind this recycling Christmas tree uh initiative yeah, it's a great question. I mean, so Cauldron Foods, we've been a, a you know a veggie and a vegan food manufacturer for, for 40 years, as you've said. Um, and we are really passionate about encouraging everybody to do whatever they can to help the environment. Um, we all know um, we need to keep global warming down to less than 1.5 degrees. Um, and we need to do that in, in, in many different ways. Thinking about how we how we travel, thinking about how we heat our homes, thinking about what we wear, but also thinking about what we eat. And what we've discovered is 87% of people are now choosing food that they think is more environmentally, um, is better for the environment. And so that's where we, we, we come in. And Rachel, uh, we talked about obviously the recycling scenario that improves presumably biodiversity, the whole notion of rewilding. It kind of ensures that indeed we're, we're not simply uh, looking to uh, abandon uh, all our kind of environmental sort of aspects by, by yes. simply actually not recycling. 
Absolutely. And the whole thing uh, becomes linked. You know, it's, it is a holistic approach, actually, that I think we need to take not only to our Christmas trees, but, you know, um, uh, starting to think about seed sowing. So recycling yogurt pots, the inside of the tube of your kitchen roll, that kind of thing. Everything actually can go on to be reused. And I think for me, it's become even greater than that. I mean, my my two youngest children are absolutely passionate about the environment. Um, and that's sort of gone on to having a plant-based diet. One of them's vegan, the other one's vegetarian. And so if we're going to avoid sort of having that scenario where we're cooking three or four different meals every night, that means that, uh, you know, my husband and I were also eating more plant-based foods and, and really feeling the benefit of it. And it's that sense that if everybody does that a bit, you know, and gradually sort of incorporates more and more um, plant-based foods into their diets, then everything, you know, it really does help if enough people are doing that, even if it's not 100% of the time, it really does make a difference. Tom, back in the 20th century when cauldron foods effectively started and began from that point of view, um, clearly, I, I seem to recall at that stage, the notion of veganuary would be looked at with curiosity, a mild curiosity at best, and at worst, well, we won't even go there. Um, do you feel as though there is a, a big cultural shift in terms of actually we, we take this on board now and there is much more support for environment, environmental issues, yeah. even beyond what we saw happening at COP26? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, a lot of people um, like I did looked at, at COP26 and and um, were disappointed with the agreements that were made. Um, you know, COP26. No mention of Christmas trees at all. I mean, what's going on there? You know, ridiculous. <laughs> no, exactly. But and, and, you know, we know that farming, for example, releases more greenhouse gases than all the fossil fuels used in travel. And that wasn't mentioned once. And so, um, you know, we, we I think a lot of people are seeing what the, what's come out of COP26 and thinking, actually, the governments aren't going to sort this for us. And so we need to stand up and we need to we need to make a difference by how we travel and what we eat. And that's why carbon uh, cauldron have gone completely carbon neutral. So as from the 1st of January, regardless of whether you buy our tofu or our falafels or our sausages, every single one of those plant based foods is completely carbon neutral, which gives consumers real reassurance that they're not doing any real damage to the environment. And cauldronfoods.co.uk is presumably the best website to go to to find out further information. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so it tells you everything about how we've achieved our carbon neutral status, uh, but also it's got some uh, amazing recipes. Um, and uh, Rachel has kindly put her, her blog on there, and I'll let Rachel tell you about that. Well, I was going to turn to your good self next, Rachel, of course, because how can people actually stay in touch with your good self uh, via the web and so on? Yes, well, obviously, um, very much so through the um, uh, Cauldron Foods website, because I've got the blog on there. And I think, you know, it sort of goes into a bit, bit more detail of everything we've discussed. Um, and the recipes, Tom's mentioned, are fantastic. I mean, there, there are so many that it makes you think, right, that's it. Don't need meat, don't need fish. That's it. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm absolutely 100% on board. Excellent. Well, Rachel Detame, uh, television gardener extraordinaire. That doesn't mean she gardens televisions, although that's not mine entirely. It's still, you know, it's a strange world indeed. I'm sure we'll have an organic form of television before too long. Uh, and Tom Lindley, of course, business unit head at Cauldron Foods. Huge thanks. Keep on keeping on and happy 2022. Thank you very much. And to you, Alex. Thank you, Alex. And to you. It's a god awful small affair to the girl with the mousy hair. But her mummy is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go But her friend is nowhere to be seen Now she walks through her sunken dream 
to the seats with the clearest view And she's hooked to the silver screen But the film is a sad thing for For she's lived it ten times or more She could spit in the eyes of fools And they ask her to focus on singers Fighting in the dance hall Congratulations, why you might well ask. Congratulations if you've got through the first Wednesday in January by sticking to your dietary uh, desires 
and indeed actually avoiding being hangry. But apparently it's the first Wednesday in January where actually you're more, more likely to actually have that hanger um, attack basically sometime between 11am and midday. Uh, but let's talk about how can we actually stick to a healthy diet for 2022 way beyond January and indeed uh, across the whole base and who better to actually speak to uh, than indeed the awesome uh, GP extraordinaire Dr Helen Lawal. How are you Helen? Thank you. I'm good. Good to speak to you again. Likewise. Now, WW, of course, uh, are the uh, team who've actually put together this research, which I thought was quite interesting so far as uh, 23%, that's nearly over a fifth of people, are more likely to be on a New Year diet now as compared to 12 months ago. Is that because, you know, we're told actually, forget working from home, we need to get back out of the office and actually work away once again, whatever the sort of pandemic scenario happens to be? Yeah, this research from WW is fascinating, really, isn't it? Yeah, 25% more likely to focus on health and well-being, 23% more likely to go on a diet now versus last year. Is that because of the year we've had? Is it perhaps um, the fact that people have seen that poor health perhaps predisposes us and puts us at risk of certain conditions and diseases? Um, I mean, January is a time anyway that it tends to be popular, you know, over 22 billion million people sorry million people embarking on restrictive diet this week I think really it's it provides a new leaf doesn't it it's a new chapter January it's an opportunity to make those changes you've been thinking about making and for me the key here is to avoid the restrictive diets avoid the diets that are encouraging you to slash your calories massively and to cut out whole food groups and really turn towards approaches that are more flexible and they enable you to still enjoy the foods that you love, enable you to still go out and eat and have takeaways and really still get pleasure from, from food, just like the new personal points program from WW, which does just that and no food is off limits. Is it fair to say that actually good successful dieting, as with most things in life, starts in the mind, that actually it's important to actually have that uh, sense of mental well-being before we can actually put this into practice and, and actually start you know, looking to how we're fueling ourselves? Yes, mindset is really, really important. And that's a great thing about WW's programme and their approach in general is that there really is a big consideration of, of about mindset because mindset is everything, isn't it? Um, because what we eat isn't just about weight loss. It's not just about health. It's how we feel in our bodies and how much enjoyment we're getting from lives and interaction. And really food should be about pleasure. It's a, an opportunity to socialize. It's an opportunity to gather around and spend time with friends and family. And the WW research found that for those who are on a restrictive diet, a quarter of them felt low in mood. And a fifth of them were obsessed with thinking about food to the point that it actually caused them to, to, to gain weight. And it can also impact on sleep as well and make our sleep worse when we're, when we're very hungry. So I'd say it's definitely more sensible, more healthy all round and more of a holistic approach to continue to enjoy the food you love and, and eat more and more of the good stuff. So the healthy fats, the fiber and the protein, which is really going to fill you up and make you feel satisfied anyway. And also bear in mind the classic acronym of uh, treats, terrible results, eating all that sugar. We've mentioned it before, and I think it's well worth saying sugar is the new nicotine. Try and stay away from that. Um, 
Hangry is one of those wonderful portmanteau words that comes from hungry and angry, hence hangry, in case people were sort of being a, a bit curious about why hangry? What is this hangerment that's actually there? Um, is that something which, as you said, that people become obsessed about eating certain foods? They become um, irritable because they, they're so determined to stick to their diet, but they actually don't give themselves the latitude to actually ensure well, you need to have a certain balance here and, and avoid becoming angry. Yeah, quite simply, when we deprive ourselves of the food that we actually need, remembering that food is fuel and it's energy and our brain needs energy to function optimally. So what happens when there's not the right amount of nutrients in the bloodstream reaching the brain is the brain goes, oh, hang on a minute, what's happening here? And it's very good at compensating, of course. But what can happen is those compensatory mechanisms, the hormones, the cortisol, the adrenaline can actually make us feel really horrible. It can mean that we find it difficult to concentrate we find it difficult to control our emotions we're moody we're emotional um as well as feeling hungry and that's where the phrase hungry comes from mm. and you mentioned there about um sugar not being good but actually i would encourage people not to label foods as good and bad whether it's sugar salt fats whatever it might be and all foods are equal and it's important that you still continue to enjoy those foods that you love even if they contain sugar um but it's about moderation and the great thing about the ww personal points program is you get a unique budget points budget and um that guides you towards the really really good foods and it also enables you with your zero points list it also enables you to eat as many of the foods on that list as you would like to and it really considers the foods that you love so that you're not deprived um of the joy one of the things with WW, of course, is it's uh, had over five decades of experience in building communities and indeed looking at the behavioural science of the whole side of things. You talked there briefly, Helen, about the WW personal point system. Can you just expand a little bit more about how it actually works and functions in practice for somebody who's never even heard of WW at this stage? So you would sign up and you fill in a questionnaire and that questionnaire is really quite detailed and it really takes in co into consideration your lifestyle, the foods that you in love, if you enjoy eating out. And based on that, it comes up with a unique personal points budget. And with most plans, you're given a budget or amount of calories you can have and that's fixed. But the great thing about this is you can actually add points and um, as the day goes by, as the weeks go by, you can add points on a daily basis by doing healthy things. So by drinking more water, moving more and eating non-starchy veggies like carrots, for example, giving you more freedom to eat the foods that you love. And the second great thing is that you get a zero points list. So this is based on the foods that you love. So the result of that is that you end up not feeling restricted and you end up feeling like you're very much in control and this is fitting in with your lifestyle and it still enables you to live a full life. And if people actually are listening to this sort of later in the month of January and think, oh, it's too late now, I have to wait until January 2023 to make a start, presumably it's never too soon or too late to actually uh, start looking at the kind of balancing factors we need to uh, apply in terms of our diets. It's never too late to start to make changes, whether it's uh, in regards to your food, your eating, your sleep, meditation, mindset, whatever it may be. But you have you have to do it when you're ready. I think it's important not to feel pressurized by the fact that it is January and there's loads of these campaigns around. And you really have to 
be ready to do it. Um, and if you are ready, you're more likely to have success, of course. Um, so this is very much the personal points program is very much a, a year long thing that's going to be there for you whenever you're ready. And it is about the long term sustainable change. And yes, there's a whole community of people waiting for you to encourage you and support you once you're ready. And where can people go to to find out further details about WW, Helen? For more information, they can go to www.com forward slash UK. Dr. Helen Noel, GP extraordinaire, as we said before. Keep on keeping on. Have a great 2022 and uh, be happy. You too. Take care. Well, hopefully you've had a nice Omicronmus or various other aspects or variants of that whole field um, and indeed uh, are heading into a whole new world of 2022. But if you're one of the many students who uh, will be in the process of returning to university, a couple of things that need to be sorted out. First of all, you don't really want to take uh, COVID-19 back to university with you and to actually address the importance of actually taking a test and actually being aware of the transmittability of, of course, the uh, subsequent variants. We're delighted to welcome once again to the Midweek Drive, that fabulous soul, Dr. Emeka Akaracha. How are you, Emeka? Hi, thank you for having me, Alex. I'm good, thank you. And yourself? Excellent. Always good to connect with yourself. So, I mean, it feels a fairly straightforward and uh, almost fairly obvious uh, statement, really. But why should students actually uh, have a test before they actually head back to campus after the Christmas vacation? Uh, this mainly because uh, one in three people now with COVID don't actually have symptoms. So a lot of asymptomatic people we see are spreading it. We know we're in the midst of the COVID-19 um, variant Omicron, which is highly infectious and spreading very, very quickly. A number of students have gone home and they've been mingling with people they normally wouldn't see all the time and family members and vulnerable people. And we know that it's spread across the country when the North and the South Omicron is spreading. We saw a lot of it prevalent in the last couple of weeks in London, and now we've seen what it's doing to hospitals in the north. So what we don't want is people going from different locations around the country unknowingly bringing COVID-19 to their universities, which is why we do advise that you do take a COVID-19 lateral flow test before going back to uni. And if you are symptomatic with cold and flu and COVID symptoms, make sure you get your PCR tests. Now, one of the things, obviously, that has made the news very much over the last few weeks and a few days has been the shortage in terms of testing kits and so on. So how easy as it actually is it for students who actually want to take that test to actually get hold of the necessary equipment to take the test in the first place? I can understand a number of people, obviously, are getting tests at the moment, and there are slightly different tests from people who are getting them from the NHS and people getting them from uh, private companies and from the public. But students can access tests from their universities. Most universities are now distributing um, COVID-19 lateral flow tests. At pharmacies, local pharmacies have tests and collection points, and you can order online at nhs.uk forward slash get dash tested as well. So there are a number of different means of getting a test and booking and taking um, your test. They're quite easy, quite simple and free to use. You get your test results within about 30 minutes, and you just need to make sure you log your results, whether positive, negative, or void, just so we can keep on top and ahead of the virus. Now, uh, certainly that is the case with respect to the University of Lincoln. Now, the other thing that obviously is in place, just as obviously schools this week have been uh, having their pupils uh, needing to wear masks for the duration. Presumably, Amica, you'd also recommend, indeed uh, strongly urge uh, all students and indeed staff on campuses to, to wear masks through the whole teaching process. Yes, of course. As said by um, the government with our Plan B regime, we now need to be wearing masks in um, high-risk congested areas such as transport and inside buildings. We should go back to mask wearing. 
and also making sure that we're socially distanced when and where appropriate and we're gelling our hands and washing our hands regularly. This is obviously going to reduce spread and potentially reduce contact and infection and transmittability in between crowded places such as universities. The data that seems to be coming through from South Africa, of course, where Omicron was first identified, uh, seems to suggest that this is a milder form of the virus. Uh, Are we, to quote a phrase I think we used several times in 2021, uh, at the the hind end of this pandemic? Is it becoming less serious than it was? Or is it a case that we still need to be vigilant because who knows what other variants could emerge? I still do think we need to be vigilant because, like we've said, we haven't been able to predict all the new variants and whether or not it's going to um, mutate. However, what we do know is because of these vaccines, potentially, that's why we're seeing milder symptoms rather than less um, hospitalization and a decrease in mortality rate. We've seen the scientists have said that the variants as they mutate tend to be um, less, tend to be less severe in terms of their symptoms. However, what we can do is what we can do. And so we can't really predict exactly what's going to happen. We can only do what we can now to keep ourselves safe. And those are obviously making sure we're doubly vaccinated and we've had our boosters where appropriate, make sure we're regularly testing when moving into new areas such as universities and make sure that when we're out and about with our friends, our family and socializing as we should be, that we're taking safety precautions and being sensible such as wearing masks, socially distancing and making sure we have our hands washed and gelled. And if students have been in contact with someone who's been infected with the variant, as far as Omicron is concerned, is there any differing advice that you'd suggest would be worth following? Yeah, so people who are fully vaccinated between um, the age of five and 18 years or above and don't need to actually isolate if they've come in contact with somebody who has COVID-19 or Omicron or is symptomatic. What they do need to do is making sure that they um, are testing regularly for the next seven days by COVID-19 actual flow tests, if they are asymptomatic, if they are symptomatic, they need to make sure they get a PCR test to make sure they're negative. However, if you have been doubly jabbed, you don't need to isolate if you've been in contact with someone with COVID-19. If you haven't, though, then you do. Uh, well, I had my uh, booster shot uh, literally just before Christmas, and I have to say, of the three, it was the one that sort of uh, knocked me back the worst. But uh, there we are. That's all part and parcel of the rich tapestry, I suppose. Uh, at least it's uh, all, all three have been sorted out at this particular moment in time. Um, if we're looking for further information, would it be gov.uk forward slash coronavirus, uh, as well as nhs.uk forward slash get tested that you'd recommend? Yes, correct. And the NHS UK forward slash get tested is also where students can make sure they get their um, order their lateral flow test as well. Dr. Emika Okaracha, huge thanks and happy 2022. And to you too, Alex. Over and over and over.
thought, hey, what a way to spend a day. Hey, what a way to spend a day. I make a vow right here and now. I'm gonna spend my time this way. I was sixteen. Michael and I got parts in Westside at White Plains High. Three o'clock went to rehearse in the gym. Mike played Doc, who did not sing. Fine with him. We sang, got a rocket. In your pocket and the Jets are gonna have their day Tonight over and over and over Till we got it right When we emerged Wiped out by that play Nine o'clock stars And moonlit the I thought, hey, what a way to spend a day. Hey, what a way to spend a day. I made a vow. I wonder now, am I cut out to spend my time this way? I'm twenty. Michael and I live on the west side of Soho, NY. 9 a.m. I write a lyric or two. Mike sings his song now on Mad Avenue. I sing, come to your senses. Defenses are not the way to go. And over and over till I get it right. When I emerge from B minor or A, five o'clock diner calls. I'm on my way. I think, hey. What a way to spend a day! Hey, what a way to spend a day! I make a vow right here and now. I'm gonna spend. My time this way. I'm gonna spend my time this.